You're listening to a resource from Alpine Bible Church. Alpine Bible Church exists to know Christ Jesus together and to make Him known. We are located in Sugar Creek, Ohio. For more information, visit our website at alpinebible.org. May Jesus be glorified in your life. Bibles to Deuteronomy 5 if you're not yet there. I don't think that I have ever been so excited to talk about murder and adultery. Um, I I don't know if it was the cold brew coffee yesterday. Um, I had spent a little time at Starbucks just kind of squaring away. We were on vacation and I wanted to spend a little bit more time preparing, and um, I felt like I could have jumped up and started preaching to everyone at Starbucks, um, which maybe would have been helpful, uh, quite honestly, um, for multiple reasons. Nevertheless, I am thankful for uh, God's Word. I'm thankful for how clear uh, He speaks to ears that are willing to hear and able to hear. I'm thankful that God has something to say this morning. I believe that, and uh, I pray that uh, he would, and we're going to pray in a moment, that he would speak. Murder and adultery are two prominent things that we see in the news uh, a lot, to the point where we don't really find ourselves all that taken aback by it, if we're honest. We see it so much that it's uh, commonplace, and uh, in in a sense... Um, hopefully these things feel distant from us and from our experience. Nevertheless, they somehow feel normal uh, in the world that we live in. Yet God is not talking to the world necessarily. He's talking to his people here in Deuteronomy 5. And the Bible, if you know enough of the Bible, you understand that the, the world... Uh, That is, those outside of the people of God are going to act like the world. Um, And yet God is speaking to his people here and calling them away from these things, warning them, commanding them not to do these things. And so uh, wrapped up in all of this is uh, how we might rightly understand these. Quite honestly... It it would be a shame if you left here and just thought, well, I'm not supposed to murder people and I'm not supposed to commit adultery. That's true. (laughs) Please leave with that. Um, But there's so much more than that. And I pray that the Lord will make that clear. Let's pray and ask him to help us uh, as we go into his word together. Father, I pray this morning that as we continue in worship, that you would speak. I pray that you would speak to hearts that are callous. I pray that you would speak to hearts that are entangled in sin. I pray that you would speak to hearts that are tired and worn down tired of trying to fight, tired of trying to battle, 
sin, that are losing. I pray that you would speak to hearts that are mourning sin in the past. Lord, I pray that you would repair by your word. That as we go under the knife, as it were, that you would do surgery on our hearts by your spirit. Lord, I believe you have something to say this morning. It's you that we want to hear from. So, Lord, please speak. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul says in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. We're in the second portion of the Ten Commandments, beginning with last week, with Pastor David looking at honor your father and mother, and the second table, it's often called, of the, second, of the Ten Commandments, is really summarized underneath what Paul says. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 22 when he's asked about the two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. We've dealt with the first four who, that mostly focus on the love of God and loving God, but now we get into loving our neighbor as ourselves. And in the Hebrew, these two verses are only really two words uh, per verse, really one word per verse, but if you can count the thing that makes it a negative, it's two words. You shall not murder, verse 17 of Deuteronomy 5, and you shall not commit adultery. Pretty clear. Probably something that you didn't need to necessarily be told. You knew this already. There's a sense in which both of these things are just inherent. And I, I will will spend a little bit of time. We're going to be all over the place this morning throughout Scripture, but we'll spend a little bit of time looking at how this was inherent and a problem, and this law, in some sense, was natural before it was ever spoken. But also, think about this. Remember the scene. Remember the setting. This is the second time that the Ten Commandments are given to the people, and they're gathered in the plain of Mo- the plains of Moab, right outside the Promised Land, 40 years after they were at Mount Sinai, initially hearing this. And Moses is reminding them, he's, remember he's preaching a sermon, essentially, to them, beginning with the Ten Commandments, and reminding them of what the Lord had already commanded them. He's telling the new generation, their parents' generation died out in the wilderness, and now he's telling the next generation these things, and he's beginning with the Ten Commandments. If you were God, which you are not, but if you were, what would you start with? What would be the top ten things you would want to tell your people? How would you want to rightly order their lives? Think about that for a moment. This is the first revelation of the law to God's people, and this is what he tells them. And the sixth and seventh things that he tells them is, you shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. That's significant, that those are the things that he includes. If we forget about, for a moment, why you think that you should not murder someone or why you think that you should not commit adultery, 
and just think about, well, why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't we murder someone? Why shouldn't we commit adultery? What's the problem with it? God makes clear that. He's grounding something. He's not simply giving a command here that's just out of the blue. He's grounding something that's in his nature, in his character, in his creation. In, it's embedded in all things. And all kinds of principles hold up these commands that he's given. You see, God doesn't give commands just out of the blue. Do it because I said so. He does things based on his own nature, his own character, his own goodness, his own holiness, his own righteousness. Everything is supported. God never says something that is not supported. Now, he has the authority to tell you and I anything he'd like to say without giving us the footnote and the why. But nevertheless, God in his nature and who he is upholds all that he commands with who he is. And we'll see that as we delve into this. You shall not murder. Verse 17. Think of this on the heels of verse 16 and the the fifth commandment. Notice, and Pastor David mentioned this, that this is the first commandment with the promise, that your days may be long. It's interesting that right after that, you shall not murder. Don't mess up, if you will, your days being long, by killing each other. Now, what's important, too, about these commandments is that uh, it's, it's, there's a positive command within the negative command. It's a negative command, you shall not murder. But within that, it's not as if this is how God's going to order his people. Look, just don't kill each other, okay, and then you'll be all right. <laughs> that would be, well, isn't there more? Isn't there more to that? And there is. There is more to that. It's not just you shall not murder each other. I have said over and over again, you've heard me read it, and perhaps some of your translations have it, you shall not murder. I'm going to suggest that murder is a better translation for this word. There are many words in Hebrew that are translated as kill or murder or slay. And uh, there's six of them, perhaps, that I've uh, just particularly that I pulled out and walked through. Different Hebrew words that talk about killing. And this particular word is something that if you spent the time, you would see that God never does this. God is never the subject of this verb. He's never the one who does this particular kind of killing. The word, if you'd like, is, is actually ratzak. R-A-T-S-A-C-H, if you'd like to try to make sense of spelling it out. But God never does this. It's something that only happens by humans and only happens, it seems, in a sense that we would call murder. But think about this as well. This is God who has wiped out the entire earth save one family. This is the same God who has wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah completely, save Lot and his daughters. This is the same God who has swallowed up uh, everyone in the earth in Korah's rebellion. And he's saying, you shall not murder. Certainly it cannot be just kill. It's specific about murder. And we know murder means there's, it's loaded. It's a loaded term. There's premeditation involved. If we were in a court, we would get into how we would define murder. 
There's premeditation involved. It's intentional. There's something behind it. There's a motive, right? You want to always try to find what's the motive? Why did it happen? You shall not murder. If we spent a little time just looking, we don't have the time to look at all of these, but oftentimes the way in which God is the subject of killing, Exodus 4.23. I'm going to give you several references here, and you can check them out later. Exodus 4.23 is when God talks about killing the firstborn in Egypt. And the, the verb there that he uses is harag, H-A-R-A-G, if you'd like to spell it out. Harag, killing the firstborn. And God oftentimes, when he is killing someone or putting someone to death, it is harag. People rarely... Uh, in, in the sense that God does it, people don't often, this verb is not often used. A famous verse in Deuteronomy 32, 39, uh, it is God who kills and makes alive. That's moot, M-O-O-T. You might say, well, that's a moot point. It's dead. It literally just means I make dead and I make alive. God is the one who has the power to do that, and he says that about himself in Deuteronomy 32, 39. There's another verb that's used for sacrificial killing, and you'll see it a lot in, in Leviticus and in Numbers. When the uh, sacrifices are to be killed, there's another verb that's used there. It's shakat, S-H-A-C-H-A-T. And so it's helpful to think about all of these things because we want to understand, well, what does this mean? What is it prohibiting them from doing and us from doing? Because this is part of God's moral law, so it upholds, it stands for us. We still must follow it. And so I'm going to suggest that murder is a good translation for this because it helps us to understand in our time and place, in our day, and how we use this particular language, murder is what's intended. Because later on, he's going to talk about all kinds of rules and laws that will guide the Israelites in war. And in war, you kill. And so he cannot mean you can never kill. In fact, if you break this law... You are to be put to death. But that's not murder. And so there's a definition of murder that we have to get down to in what he's trying to say. But let's think about for a moment why not. Why can't we murder? There's all kinds of dumb movies that glorify murder, glorify um, killing. Uh, There's games. There's all kinds of things in our society of the few things that he ever said that was actually right, Pope John Paul II that says that our culture is a culture of death. That we're obsessed with death, that we're surrounded by it, that it is per, it's pervasive in everything that we see and do. There's an obsession with it. There's also a, a diminishing of it in some sense. So why not? Genesis 127 Again, these are just going to be some places we're not going to have time to go, but let me just read them to you for your own reference. Genesis one twenty seven: Man and women, men and women, male and female, were created in the image of God. Every person that you've ever met is an image bearer of God. Whether they know God or not, whether they acknowledge that or not, is an image bearer. So the intrinsic value of every single human being is that they're made in the image of God. No matter where they live, no matter when they've lived, no matter who they are, no matter what they believe, they are made in the image of God. And so that gives them dignity, value, and worth. If we look at the second major sin that took place in Scripture, Genesis 4, the, the slaughter of Abel by Cain. 
the second major sin that takes place is murder. And in Genesis 4.10, we see that Abel's blood is crying out to the Lord. In Genesis 9.6, we, uh, we, we see the first indication of an eye for an eye, or a retaliation because uh, of someone killed. If someone is killed, Genesis 9.6, if someone is killed, they are to be, their life is to be taken. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. They have intrinsic value and worth. Leviticus 17, verse 14, tells us that the life of all flesh is in its blood, is its blood. And so to take that away is to take their life away. The life that God has given them, to take that away is something that God has done, that God has given. And we already know about God in Deuteronomy 32, 39, that he is the one and the only one who kills and makes alive. Leviticus 19, verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. It's where it's said, right in the midst of all kinds of... You, you, get, you can get lost in Leviticus. If you're unfamiliar with Scripture or if you're just getting bogged down, you can get lost in it. But the first time that shows up is in Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18. And then later, in uh, verses 33 and 34 of the same chapter, Leviticus 19, it tells you you even must love the sojourner. So you're not just loving the Israelites. You're loving the guy who walks into your camp and who you are to... Uh, welcome as a stranger, because you were sojourners, he says. So you must love your neighbor as yourself. Who's your neighbor? Everybody. All the fellow Israelites, but also the sojourner. Leviticus twenty four seventeen. here is the, the verdict on what must happen when someone takes a human life. They are to be put to death. It's that serious. So why can't we kill, why can't we murder someone? Because people are made in the image of God, they have intrinsic value, worth, and dignity before God. He has made them, and he is the only one who can kill and make alive. And so inherently, when we murder, it's just another way for us to try to be God. It's just another way for us to try to make ourselves as God. And so this is getting after what it means, what it meant... This, this command is it's talking about premeditated murder. You may have never felt tempted to kill someone. You may have said stupid things like, oh, I'd just like to kill this person, or oh, man, I could just kill him. Talking about your kids, perhaps. <laughs> but you're not, you don't actually mean that, I hope. You might be on the road and feel you know, intense amounts of rage, but then you remember that you're a Christian and you stop. Feeling that way, hopefully. But I, I would suspect, maybe not, maybe you felt tempted to take someone's life. I don't know what that feels like. I can say before the Lord with a clear conscience, I don't know what it feels like to want to kill someone. Maybe you do. And so I don't want to make light and assume that maybe that you don't. Because maybe you do. But underneath murder comes all kinds of things, difficult things, obvious things. The choice to take one's life, we see this a lot in the news now, suicide. All kinds of famous people are taking their lives. All kinds of students, very close by. There was a rash, whole stream string of uh, students taking their lives at various local schools in Stark County. There's 
shows talking about it. There's all kinds of suicide is pervasive. If you've never experienced suicide from someone close to you, you don't fully know what it feels like. But if you have, you know the confusion, the horror, the unspeakable just cloud that comes from it. In many ways, the Lord used a suicide to make me start asking questions about him, make me start wondering about him. It did the opposite for many of my family, but for some reason for me, I wanted to know what was going to happen to my grandfather who, when I was 16, took his life. What was going to happen to him now after that had happened? And that led me, in many ways, three years later, the Lord used that as a means of drawing me to himself because I wanted to know what happened. But suicide is the choice to take your own life, to murder yourself. And assisted suicide, no matter how sterile and humane you want to try to make it, whether it's through a needle, whether it's through anything else, is this. It's murdering yourself. It's your decision to become God and to take your own life. We know this is true and we hear this about abortion. An equally painful subject. An equally heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching subject. And quite frankly, you don't know, same as suicide, you don't know what it feels like unless you've been involved in it, had a family member who's been involved in it, or perhaps had it happen to yourself. And I know that like any sin that you regret, this is on that list. But we've already sung about grace. We've already sung about the patience of our Lord, the grace of our Lord that extends. And many of you are sitting here with all kinds of stories. Maybe it's not this one. But all kinds of stories that God has forgiven you of sin that you just feel vile about. But he has forgiven you of that and taken that away. Jesus took all that on himself. Which should make you all the more glad and excited to give him praise and honor and glory that he's due. Because he's so gracious, he's so patient, oh, and he's so good. But this is serious. The command is there. This picture came into my mind. This is kind of what the Bible does. It takes us through a drama. The law sort of racks us in the jaw and knocks our teeth out of our mouth. And then the gospel picks us up and gives us a hug. But we need this. We need to be hit square between the eyes with the law and understand, you shall not murder. We need to hear that. We need to sit for a moment in that piercing command from the Lord until we run to what we know is coming, what we know is at the end of the story, grace and mercy and forgiveness. We need to hear that because that is the means by which the Lord brings us to himself. Every one of you have that story. You were struck at one point with, I am a sinner. I don't measure up to this. 
Every one of you that is a believer, I don't want to assume that you're all believers here this morning. Every one of you that is a believer in Christ, you were struck at a point when you realized, when you saw some command in the scriptures and you saw, I am not that and I cannot do that or not not do that. And you were cut to the heart as the people were when Peter spoke in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. And you, you reached around for where can I go to have this taken care of and Right there you found Christ. That line that we sung in that last song, my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face, that line gets me every time. (laughs) Because I think about all of the stuff that life brings, and I, I can't wait to see my Lord's face. I don't know about you. I just I just wanna see his face and know that I'm there. Because he's been waiting. And he's been with me throughout all of that. And he's been with you. But we must be struck with the law. We must allow that to hit us square between the eyes. Let's turn over to the text that Joel read in Matthew chapter 5. We have to go here when we talk about the Ten Commandments. This is not a sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, but I do need to deal with a couple things. There's a, quite frankly, a dumb narrative that goes throughout all kinds of interesting teaching about the Sermon on the Mount that tries to cast Jesus as some sort of revolutionary. That's not what Jesus is being in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is being a good Bible teacher. Relying on Leviticus, everything that he's saying is rooted in something that he has already said. And so he is encountering people that have got it wrong and bringing them back to what is right. Because I hopefully we can see as we reference some of these things, he's already said, the Lord has already said these things. And that's inherent in what he's already said. He's not changing anything. He's not doing anything differently. He is encountering people who have gotten it wrong. And he's reminding them of what's true. Matthew 5 and 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. He sort of gives three degrees, if you will, of murder before anybody's killed. And he begins with with anger. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, if you were to go back, and we don't have the time to do that, but I'm going to encourage you to do that, go back and read Leviticus 19. And you will find a clear picture several times over that the Lord says uh, and forbids anger between brothers, which leads to not loving your neighbor as yourself. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And what Jesus gives here in this is things that lie behind murder, which this further helps us to understand that murder is the right translation. Because premeditation is involved here. Anger begins. I'm angry with you, and that leads to all kinds of bad places for me to go. Yes, there's righteous anger. Yes, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. But this is anger that leads 
to sin. That is sin itself that leads to further sin. And in many ways, it's an anger that while you want it to be directed at that other person, at this point, it's actually just toxic to yourself. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, or some of yours says, Raka, to his brother, will be liable to the council. This is sort of an insult of your, the other person's intelligence, of their thinking. We're liable to the council. It's moving beyond anger. I'm, I'm, it's now coming out. Anger is starting to come out. And it's coming out in little insults against the person. But then the third degree, if you will, is you fool. And this is, a, this is not just, remember, fools in the Bible are, are morally corrupt, don't get it. They're not, we think about a fool as like, I don't know, goofy from the Disney Channel. That's not what a biblical fool is. A biblical fool is someone who has no moral compass, who does not follow the Lord's commands, who is not wise, who runs after things that are not right. And this is a moral judgment on that person. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This person hasn't even killed anybody yet. He's been angry. He's insulted. And he said, you fool. And before he even kills anyone, he's liable to the hell of fire. And so Jesus gets after these things because here's the thing. None of you, maybe none of you, feel tempted to to murder, but I can say that 100% of you have been angry with someone, and perhaps are angry with someone right now. Maybe several someones. Maybe someone sitting next to you. Maybe someone in this building. And this is where the the Lord gets into our sock drawer and says, nope, that can't live. Don't think. That's what the Pharisees did. They thought, well, I haven't killed anybody. People say this all the time, right? Why well, I've never killed anybody, so I'm a good person. Well, wait a minute. Anger is dangerous. And not just for what it does to us, but for what the Lord thinks about it. And that's more important. Our, the consequences of our sin are less important than what the Lord thinks about our sin. We hate our consequences, they're uncomfortable, we don't like them. But that's less important than what the Lord thinks about your sin, than what the Lord thinks about your anger. And notice how he quickly turns to the results. This kind of behavior impedes worship. So those of you that were just singing your hearts out, if this is true of you, your worship was not true, is what Jesus says. If you are offering your altar, your gift, your offer, excuse me, if you're offering your gift to the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. I didn't see any of you run out after this was read, but maybe some of you should. If you're sitting here festering about something between the couple of you or between husband and wife, This is telling you to deal with this. It's not a suggestion. It's Jesus telling you to deal with it. Because it's sin. And it's impeding your worship. Why? I just don't feel the same. I don't want to read this. Why don't I want to read your Bible? It could be that you have some problem with another person that you've not dealt with. 
And no, your worship is not going to be fulfilling and enjoyable and good because you are festering on anger, which the Lord deems is basically like committing murder in your heart. Come to terms quickly. Verse 25, with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is saying it's serious. There's a serious nature to this kind of behavior between people. And anger, anger is awful. Anger sometimes, we can, even if we feel so justified in being angry, it has sinful roots. And we need to be very careful about that. So perhaps you feel like you have gotten away with, well, I'm, I live up to this commandment. Um, I think the Lord is telling us that none of us have. With face value, perhaps you have. But the Lord is getting in. There's, there is a murderer. That's the point. There is a murderer inherent in each of us in terms of our anger, in terms of our feelings about other people, and where we can go. And be it not for the Spirit of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, who knows where we would go. I said that Jesus has, is upholding what has always, always been. In 1 John, um, I'm going to go to just one place. 1 John, there's several places I could go in 1 John, but 1 John chapter 2. In verse 7, he says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. This old commandment that he says is kind of new, but it's actually old, is he's referring to uh, what has already been revealed back through Leviticus, all the way back through Genesis, this inherent uh, call to love and to value fellow image bearers, fellow brothers. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. He is even more sharp in chapter 3, verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Is hatred, is anger serious? Does Jesus take it seriously? Absolutely. And it's rooting things all the way back in Leviticus, all the way back in Genesis, all the way back to the very creation, all the way back to the very nature of who God is. The value of image bearers of him. But Jesus is taking care of this. For us. So, those of us who have faith in Jesus Christ, we need not live underneath this intense, immense weight of guilt and shame for our anger, for perhaps our murder, murderous thoughts, whatever else, ways that we have been guilty of this commandment. The cross has taken this away for us. Romans 3, I'll just read a few parts to you. Romans 3, verse 21 But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all have sinned, verse 23, and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God has taken care of your breaking of this commandment through his son, through his death on the cross. And through faith in Jesus Christ, you are no longer, and don't have to be any longer, a murderer. You don't have to be someone who has a murderous heart, an angry heart. So through faith in Jesus Christ, he gets all the way to the end of this little passage, verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by his faith? By this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So through faith in Jesus Christ, we're upholding the law, Paul says. And this should remind us, in Matthew chapter 5, earlier before this, in verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, but rather to fulfill them. And Paul says, through faith in Jesus Christ, we uphold the law. And so, we are able to keep the law. Remember all the way at the beginning of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5, there's three commands that that the, the Lord gives through Moses. Hear it, learn it, and do it. And we said that we can't do any of those things on our own. The Spirit helps us do each of those things. And so, through faith in Jesus Christ, we can hear that command, do not murder. We can learn it, and we can do it. Jesus, God, has kept this commandment. That's what's important. Jesus is not a perfect substitute if he has not kept the law completely. But he has. God is guiltless in all things, and specifically as it relates to murder. Though he is the one who kills and makes alive, he is just, Romans 3.26 tells us. He is without sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us. And he's righteous, Romans 3, 21, 22, 25, 26, and a whole bunch of other places. Tell us. God is guiltless in all these things. Jesus is guiltless in all these things. And so we are helped to keep this through the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, and 23 uh, remind us of the fruit of the Spirit that the Spirit gives to us and does in us as, as we go along uh, in our Christian faith. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. All of those things help us in our efforts to keep this law. First John chapter 4 reminds us about the Spirit in us, leading us to faith uh, in Jesus Christ, but also leading us to love our brothers. Now what about the next commandment? Back in our text in Deuteronomy. Notice it begins with, and you shall not commit adultery. Verses 18 all the way down through verse 21 all begin with, and. Almost in a sense to say that all of these things are combined in some way. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and so on. And just like with the, the sixth commandment, there is a positive command within, within this command not to commit adultery. It's not as if the way that the Lord desires to help marriages flourish in through and in through the Ten Commandments is just don't commit adultery. If you went to a marriage conference and that's what they told you, you'd be like, ah, can I have my money back, right? Because there's got to be more. So naturally, there's more intrinsic within that. But he's giving us garters. It's like playing bumper bowling. It's giving us garters to keep us out of places that will lead us to destruction. Adultery, he does not talk about all sexual immorality here. 
That's dealt with in later laws, but this is specifically talking about adultery. Either one or both parties whom are married, or I would argue betrothed as well in the Old Testament. One or, two of the, one or more of those parties being engaged in sexual relationships with those who are not their spouse. And there's a particular focus on this, not just on all sexual morality, which is a problem, and the Lord deals with in other laws and in other places. But he particularly focuses on this because marriage is supposed to be a faithful relationship of commitment. And there is an interesting connection that the Lord makes throughout Scripture with adultery and basically the first commandment. You shall not have no other gods before me. And what he says is, and we'll get there in a moment to a couple places, but what he says is his people are committing spiritual adultery by going after other gods. Because it's supposed to be such an intimate, faithful, committed relationship between God and his people. And so it's clear how, how uh, a person would break this. There's obvious physical adultery. Proverbs 6.32, he, he who commits Adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. There's obvious, clear commands against just physical adultery. Jesus, in uh, the text there in, in Sermon on the Mount, which has been read, and I won't go there just for sake of time, but he deals with this problem of going from our eyes to our heart. He backs it up from not just the physical nature of adultery, but also it begins with your eyes, things that you see. When you look lustfully at a woman, it begins you've committed adultery with her in your heart, and you've not even gotten to the act of adultery. You're dealing with things, he's dealing with motives, he's dealing with things that lie beneath the surface for us. And what you find as you grow in your Christian faith, many of you can attest to this, is it's not just the big things anymore that you're trying to avoid. It's you're realizing there's all kinds of sins behind the sins that I'm dealing with. I'm actually, perhaps you recognize, I'm actually quite a terrible gossiper. Or I'm actually quite a terrible covetous person. Or I'm very prideful. Or I'm very selfish. And that leads to all kinds of other problems that, right, you can begin to dig farther back into this root, and that's what Jesus is dealing with in Matthew 5 with this particular subject. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand, chop it off. Now, some people took this literally uh, throughout church history, which is not what Jesus is saying. To pluck your eye out and cut your hand off. He's saying, if something causes you to go down this path, in your mind, in your heart, you need to get rid of it. I've read studies, maybe you've heard this, on how uh, most oftentimes in divorce uh, settings, Facebook is, is spoken as a um, contributing factor. There may be those of you here, just like with the murder thing, it may be those of you here this morning, quite frankly, who need to hear, do not commit adultery. Because you've already let something go too far. You've already let a conversation go too far. You've already rekindled some stupid thing on Facebook with somebody from way back when. You've allowed a work relationship to go too far. You've allowed something to infiltrate your faithful, committed marriage that is supposed to testify to the world the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may have done that already. You may be in the midst of that right now. And what the Lord says is, don't. Stop. 
we can lose track of uh, ourselves. We can allow ourselves to go down a path. And if you have, and you look back and think, how did I get to this point? How did this happen? You trace it back and you realize Jesus is right. I began with, it began with something small and it grew and it grew and it grew. And so maybe conversations need to be had. But just like with everything else, the Lord extends forgiveness even in the midst of such wretched, awful sin. The Lord, there's nothing outside of the Lord's grace. There's nothing outside of what the Lord can repair. And so there may be consequences, but there you can bet on the fact that the Lord will extend forgiveness and grace if you seek him with your whole heart. But there's spiritual adultery as well. The Lord deals with this. I would commend you to read Ezekiel 16. The Lord uses graphic, graphic language to talk about the ways in which the Israelites went after other gods. And every single time, all throughout that chapter, he is using adulterous language, uh, condemning them of what they have done. He talks about how he picked them up and made them his own. Verse 15 of chapter 16 uh, of Ezekiel, But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor shall ever be. Verse 30, How sick is your heart? declares the Lord, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute. Verse 35, Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. He calls his people a prostitute. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved, all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. He's turning it back on them. And you just keep going through here and it's, it's, wow. The way the Lord exposes their sin and the way he uses this language to point out to them their sin. Now, we're not Israel, but in many ways this is spoken to us as well. The way in which we run after other things, the way in which we search after other gods. And remember, God has already said he's a jealous God and there's nobody else that can be in that spot with him. There's no other person that can be a God to you as he is. Because he is, the, he is the Lord, our God, he says. And to go after other things is spiritual adultery. And if you just read through this chapter, you'd think, how is this going to end? How are we going to get to the end of this? What is he going to say? This sounds terrible. And perhaps as you spend a little time allowing the Lord to speak to you through this, you understand some ways that you've gone after other things. You've ran after other ideas and other thoughts. Not just in necessarily perhaps in physical adultery with your own spouse, but also with the Lord. You've run after other things. And, and friends, this is what struck me. All the ways that this chapter would end. This is what struck me in Starbucks yesterday, that I wanted to get up and start shouting. Shouting. 
Verse 59, For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. It's connected to all kinds of things he's already said in this chapter. But here it is, verse 62. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded, and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When, here it is, I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord. He says, you won't even have anything to say when you realize what I will do for you, even though you are a prostitute, even though you run after everything else that is not me, everything else that I've told you not to do, I will establish my covenant with you, and you will be speechless, because you won't be able to gather, how in the world can you be so merciful to us? This is for Israel, but this is for you. This is what happened to you and I, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. You were going along in some string of your life, doing whatever it is that you did, and he came and established with you a covenant through faith in Jesus Christ, brought you to himself, and you were speechless. You should have been. And every time you recognize and think about what the Lord has done, how he has saved you, what he has, what he has pulled you out of, what you were doing before, what you loved before, what you desired before, you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you all that you have done. There's a thing about guilt that in some ways it's a grace that hangs with us. We remember what we've done enough to know I used to be that and I lament that and I hate that but the Lord has made me not that anymore. And there's a grace that God gives you just enough memory to remember I used to be that but I'm not that anymore. And not because of anything that I've done not because I'm a great guy because I was that but the Lord made me not that anymore. When I atone for you all that you have done. You ever been to a concert or been to some event and down at the bottom in, in small little ink it says sponsored by such and such or paid for by or those terrible political commercials we watch every couple of years say paid for by such and such. Right after when it says when I atone for you all that you have done there should be a little thing sponsored by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how he has atoned for all that you have done. you may remember and be confounded. As the cross taking care of your adultery, both physical and spiritual, yes, you may remember and be confounded when I atone for you all that you have done. We didn't have time, but the book of Hosea, I commend that to you as well. It's a prophet who's called to go marry a prostitute. And it's a picture meant to say what the Lord has done in his, in and for his people. The Lord and God of Ezekiel and Hosea is our Lord. How faithful is he? 
that he puts up with all of chapter 16 of Ezekiel and all that the people have done and all that you and I have done. And then he says, you will be confounded when I atone for all that you've done. How faithful is Jesus with his bride. Ephesians 5, we read that little passage at our weddings, but that's about Christ and his church. Christ loving his church, giving himself up for her, sanctifying her, cleansing her. You, if you are, have faith in Jesus Christ, you are Christ's bride. He has loved you. He has gave himself up for you. He has sanctified you. He has cleansed you with the washing of the water with his word. And so he might present the church, you and I, to himself in splendor, so that a beautiful bride one day can walk down the aisle and gaze at Jesus' face. We're reminded several times over throughout Scripture that murderers and adulterers will not inherit the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, Revelation 22. Each of those places remind us that each of these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that is said in a present tense so that if you are ongoing in murder, if you are ongoing in adultery, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that seems so hard, perhaps. It seems so challenging, difficult. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, the way is easy, that leads to destruction, and those who enter it by it are many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Of course it's hard to do this. You can't do it, in fact, apart from Jesus Christ. Matthew 21, Jesus has just announced himself as the cornerstone uh, mentioned, and even that we sung about earlier. And he says in verse 44, The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. We see we have a choice with Jesus. We can trip over him and be broken to pieces. We can fall on him and be broken to pieces. But he will promise to take those broken pieces and put us back together as we are supposed to be. Or you can be crushed by him. You have that choice, he's saying. And either way leads to one way or the other. You fall on the stone and be broken to pieces. He'll put you back together. But when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus was murdered as a murderer for murderers. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus willingly pursued this murderous end for an adulterous people by being given an adulterous punishment. And he died for his adulterous bride to buy her back. He did this joyfully. He did this willingly. He did this with you and I on his mind. He is conquering all of the spiritual powers of everything. He is upholding the universe by the word of his power while hanging on the cross. He is thinking of you and I being put to death for something that he did not deserve, but for what you and I do deserve, so that he might buy us back and that he might atone for all of our sins and that we might be in him complete and that we might want to follow his ways, that we might desire the things that he desires and want to love him and obey his commands. Praise God. Let's pray.
Lord, we give you praise this morning for all that you've done. We acknowledge that we are sinful. We acknowledge that we do not deserve all the things that you have done for us. We acknowledge that we have been caught in the midst of sin. Some of us here perhaps may even be in that right now. I pray for those, Lord, that are struggling, that are wrestling with sin. God, that you would break through, that they would see how far they have fallen short, but that you would show them how much you have worked to bring them back, to buy them back. I pray for believers this morning that we would be encouraged and reminded of all that the Lord has done in saving us, and that we would heed these warnings from our Lord to watch our hearts, to guard our eyes and our minds, to search through our motives and our thoughts and our intentions so that we might not be running off to these and breaking these commandments. Thank you that there's grace, Lord. There's forgiveness that meets us. I pray, Lord, that we would desire to respond to your word and live in obedience to you because you have obeyed for us and bought us back, satisfied your own demands so that we might live freely to love what you love and desire what you desire. You've done this all through Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that we pray.